Um, the first Roman numeral we come to, the first division, is Christ as Son is superior to the prophets and the angels. The first place that he's going to start in his argument is that Christ is superior to the prophets and the angels. And he begins with, God has spoken finally in his Son. So let us read in verse 1 1. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. The son is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansings for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus, he became so far better than the angels, as he has inherited a name superior to theirs. So, what's going on here? The first place that the author starts is, after long ago, we see a comparison and contrast here. God is speaking. And he makes it very clear that God has always been speaking. He has been speaking in the First Testament. He has been speaking in the Second Testament. In the First Testament, he spoke in various ways. So there are times that God spoke directly to the prophets and said, Say exactly word for word what I have said. And the prophets come and say, Thus saith the Lord. And they verbatimly repeat a dictation that God gave them. There are times that they have verbally heard God speak to them. There are times that they've just heard God, a thought in their mind. There are times that an angel literally came to them and spoke to them in some way or form. There are times that God spoke through miracles when He's parting the Red Sea, when fire's coming down out of heaven. God has chosen many different modes and patterns in order to speak to His people over the periods of time. However, the contrast is today. Today, He speaks through His Son. And the emphasis here is that this revelation is the finality of all revelations. There will be no more revelations anymore. There is only Jesus Christ. There will be no prophet who will come and say, oh, by the way, I'm greater than Jesus. And Islam, it's Jesus, and then, oh, by the way, Muhammad too, who came later. And so he is the final revelation. You will never, ever, ever, ever find anything outside of Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't match up to Jesus, so yes, there may be the gift of prophecy and prophets today in our church, and I believe that's still there to a certain extent, but nothing that will bring new revelation. If there is somebody who has the gift of prophecy or prophet, it must completely align with everything that Christ has revealed. And it's the first and foremost place that the author starts with. The second thing that he's emphasizing here is that Jesus is his son. And that's the point of the parable. When Jesus says, hey, the, the, the master the, was having a banquet and he sent his servant and, and the people in the towns, they beat him up and kill him. And then he sent another servant and another servant. And then he thought, if they reject a servant, then I'll send my son. Because what greater person to bring the announcement of a banquet than my own son? And unfortunately, they killed him too. But the point is, would you rather get the message of who God is from a servant, a flawed human being who's a sinner, from a miracle that's totally subjective in general? Or would you rather have the Son himself come and tell you what his Father is like? There's no better way to understand who God is 
other than God himself, but then through his son. Now here's the thing, God is completely unknowable. You cannot know God in any kind of way. There's nothing we can do to ever gain access to God, to ever know God, to ever bridge that gap between us and God. So the only way we can know God is if God himself bridges that gap. And he chose to do that. He stepped into Adam and Eve's life with the sacrifices. He stepped into Abraham's life. But those were always he was, there was always a shield of angels between him and Abraham, or him and Moses, and that can, we'll talk about that more later, if that's unfamiliar. There's always some weird miracle going on that the pillar of fire just doesn't quite get God. The tabernacle didn't quite get God. The sacrificial system. So there's always this, yes, God wanted to make himself known, but God can't come into our presence, and we can't bridge the gap. So the best thing that God can offer us is His own Son. Because His Son is the only one who's had an intimate relationship with Him. The Son is the only one that knows Dad better than anybody else. And the Son is God. And so this is the point. The author of the Hebrews immediately begins, why would you want to go to anything else? Why would you want to go back to the law? Why would you want to go back to an animal sacrificial system? Why would you want to go back to some, I had a vision or I had a dream? Why would you want some kind of little boy visiting heaven? Why wouldn't you just want the Son? Because He knows Him better than anybody else. And that's where the author of Hebrews starts. Really think about it. The Son, who is God, or somebody else? And that's where he begins. Today, finality He's spoken to us in the most ultimate way. Because here's the reality. Why do we have families? Why do we have imageries of shepherds? Why do we have imageries of a wife and a husband? Because God was going to reveal himself to us one day. And he loaded the world with all of these imageries. So that when Christ comes along, we would understand son. We would understand being the bride of Christ. Those are the only reason any of these images, shepherd, lamb, husband, wife, Messiah, son, daughter, exist. They exist for one purpose and one purpose only, to help us fully understand when Christ shows up as all those things. And so he brings all those imageries and he brings them to himself and he says, the only reason you really truly had families was to understand me when I came. The only reason you had shepherds, the only reason you had kings, the only reason you had priests, the only reason you had tabernacle was so that you would understand me when I came along because I knew other way to reveal who I was. So I loaded the world with all these imageries. You didn't invent these concepts. I did so that you would understand me when I come. And so you must understand that everything in the First Testament is a Photoshop image, another facet so that when you put all those images together into a multifaceted diamond, you would see Jesus. And now he's here. So why go back to the facet when you have the completed picture? And that's where he begins. Today, he has spoken through his son, who is lamb, who is king, who is priest, who is tabernacle, who is bride or groom, who is everything. And all of our worldly experiences are to help us understand those imageries. Worldly in a non-negative, sinful kind of way. Okay? Now, now he has to unpack this. 
There's a chiastic structure here. You see that with the, the A, B, the C, the X, and then the mirrored C, B, and A. Chiastic structure is chiastic parallelism. comes from a Greek letter called chi. And the Greek letter chi is an X. And so the idea is if you look at it, the one side completely mirrors the other side. So it's like looking in the mirror and you see the reverse image of it. And so chiastic structure is something that's used a lot in the Bible. Um, probably way more than we've ever discovered. And so there's a chiastic structure here. And the point is that the author develops a point A, a point B, a point C, and then the X becomes the pivot point. It's like the mirror. And everything hinges or pivots on that. And then you repeat C, B, and A again. So how does he do this? I've kind of, so that you understand, I always get lost in like 2B, 2B, 2C, 2 So I actually just printed it out for you so you could see it there. So in verse 1 and 2A, you see that he's emphasizing the prophets. And so the first thing you see in letter A is he's contrasting Christ with the prophets. And then we get to 2B. And in 2B it says, Whom he appointed heir of all things. So he's emphasizing the heir, the kingship of Christ. And then we get to 2C, where it says, And through whom he created the world. And so he's emphasizing Christ as creator. And then we get this threefold mediator statement. 3A, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the representation of his essence, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. So you have Christ contrasted with the prophets, and then he emphasizes Christ as heir. You can't relate to that. That's heaven. Then he emphasizes Christ as creator. You can't relate to that because that's heaven. But then he emphasizes Christ as the radiance of glory, which we can see that. We can interact with the glory of God because he is the light of the world that came into the darkness. And he is a representation of his essence. We can relate to that because he is literally the image of God, the Son of God, who comes down and walks among us. And then he is, um, he sustains all things. And we can relate to that because we live in the thing that he's sustaining and keeping going. And so that's the mediator part. That's the part we can relate to because that's where heaven is so disconnected from us that we don't fully understand what it means for him to be glory, sustainer, or the exact image. But at the same time, we can get a grasp and an image and a hold on that a little bit. So that's where the gap begins to be bridged. But then he repeats C again. So then in um, 3b it says, So who he accomplished cleansing for sins. That's work as well. So he's creating the world in heaven, but now he's redeeming the world down on earth. Both of those are his works. One's in heaven and one's on earth. And then we see in 3C, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, yes, it's back in heaven, but the difference is he's now gone to heaven with his human body, his incarnated heaven body. And so he's brought a little bit of earth with him into heaven. And because we now are in Christ and He's in us, we now have access to heaven through relationship with Him. So in some ways, it's still on earth. And that's His messianic kingship. But now He's king on earth and in heaven, so to speak. And then He goes in and He contrasts Himself with the angels, 
which angels are the only glimpse of divinity we've ever had. Angels, until Jesus came along, was the closest we ever got to a relational, personal, divine being. Yes, God revealed himself through the prophets, but that's not divine. Yes, he revealed himself through the miracles, but that's not divine or relational. The angels were the closest we could ever get to divine and relationship, personality, until Jesus came along. And so in that way, the angels, even though they're in heaven, they're ultimately, and first and foremost, mostly on earth. Because that's what they serve. Because as later, in chapter 2, the author is going to say that they are our servants. They are created to serve us, to mediate for us. And so what do you see here? You see that the A, the B, and the C on the bottom are mirroring the A and the B on the C on the top. But it's kind of the opposite. Those are in heaven, the top, and these are on earth, the bottom. But the other reason they do a chiastic structure like this is because X is what's not like. And if anything you know, God likes building patterns, and then he likes violating the pattern. (laughs) And so the one of the things he tries to do, it's like the three little pigs. You have a pattern. They build a house, they build a house, they build a house. And then the pattern continues. He comes and tries to blow it down, doesn't work. He tries to come and blow it down, doesn't work. And then the pattern gets violated. And so by building a pattern, you repeat. And repeating teaches a lesson. The more times you hear something, the more likely you remember, because repetition is the hallmark of Jewish literature. God loves repeating himself, because repeating emphasizes things, and we're dumb. So we need it. That's why we're called sheep. Um, but the other thing you can do with a repetition is you can violate it. You can break the pattern. And the breaking of the pattern, when you see... Little tree, little tree, little tree, little tree, then bam, big tree. That really sticks out to you. And so when you break the pattern, you can really emphasize it. So the X is not like the other things. And by putting in the middle, what he's emphasizing is that's the most important part. The X is the most important part. And the most important part right now is the king is our mediator. So in A, B, and C... The subject of all of those statements is God. And A, B, and C at the top, the subject of all those things is God. And X, the subject switches to the Son. And the second, C, B, and A, the subject is the Son. And then in the top, A, B, and C, the emphasis is what's happening in the cosmos, the the universe, the heavens. But in X, C, and B, and A, the emphasis is on salvation on earth. And so X is when God makes a transition from heaven to earth. X is when God makes a transition from king of the universe to mediator of salvation on earth through a relationship. X is Jesus as king, priest. X is Jesus as God, son. X is God, man. X is everything. And so in this one little cram-packed sentence, he can emphasize these very important concepts. But not only that, if you've noticed, there's seven statements about who Jesus is. Seven statements. And the first statement is this. Christ is appointed heir of all things. What does that mean? If you're the heir to something, that means one day you're going to be the king. And you're going to have the absolute sovereignty and power over all things. And so by saying that Christ is heir to all things, what is he heir to? He's heir to the divinity of God. He's heir to the kingdom of God. And so 
One, he's saying the only way you can inherit God is if you are God. And by inheriting God, that makes him king over the entire universe. Therefore, to be heir of all things means that he is God, he is creator, he is sovereign king over all things. But we're so used to saying, but doesn't the king have to die before you inherit it? No. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a father and a son to co-reign equally together. When a son had finally reached a certain age, and the father, because a lot of times the father would reign to 67 years old, and the son's like 30 or 40, a lot of times the father would actually take his son and appoint him and coronate him as an equal king with him. Because what better way to understand what it's like to run the kingdom than to do it before your dad dies and you're all on your own? I mean, what better way to learn how to balance a checkbook but then to do it before you move out of your parents' house? And so the reality is that there's a co-reign going on. But because he is the son of God, because if you're the son of something, then that means you're the same thing as the son that you're of, then he is God as well. And so the first statement he makes is, Christ is God. Christ is king over the entire universe. Two, through Christ, God created the world. So if there was any doubt, okay, maybe he's heir. I'm not quite convinced that that makes him God too. Well, he created everything. And by creating everything, that gives you control and sovereignty over everything. There's two things that give you control over something. You create it and you name it. And so God has control over the universe because he created it and he named it. That's one of the reasons why you are a sovereign authority over your children. You created them and you named them. And that gives you authority over them. And so by Christ being the creator, and we see that in John. And John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came through the Word. And so there's this emphasis on Him as creator. Therefore, He's sovereign over things. Number three, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. The word here is not just a light bulb ex- exuding light. The, the, the word here is an act of shining, as in the light is the light bulb as well. And so here's the reality. In the First Testament, all the people could see was the radiance of God's glory. One of my favorite passages is Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel sees this vision of heaven. And he sees God up on this throne. And I love the way he words it because he says, And I saw the likeness of of the appearance of the glory of God. He didn't see the glory of God. He saw the appearance of the glory of God. But he didn't see the appearance of the glory of God. He saw the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. Because that's how far a sinner like Ezekiel was removed from God. And so now you come into the First Testament, or Second Testament, and God says, that glory, that's Jesus. What you were seeing was Jesus. And, and, and we don't want to push that too far and say the light literally is Jesus, but in some way it kind of is because Jesus is God. And, and how you, you're not meant to dissect it and separate. You're just meant to accept it and embrace it. And so that is the glory of God. That is actively, and is the glory, is the light that made things come and exist and sustain. And Christ is that. That pillar of fire that led them out of Egypt and led them through the Red Sea, and led them for 40 years, and then went into the tabernacle, and stayed in the tabernacle from 1446 to 586 B.C., almost 700 years, that was Jesus, the glory of God. And that's why John says, in the beginning was the light, and the light came in the darkness. And so, this is the appearance. Christ, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Number four, Christ is the representation of His essence. Okay? Um, 
there's a, I like the, there's a translation that says it is the exact imprint. The copy. Now, the imagery you should not have here is a copy machine. In our modern day technology, we think copy machine. And every time you copy something, that copy is not quite the same as the original. And the more you copy it, the more it degrades. The word in the Greek here is not like a copy. The Greek is a coin, minting a coin, an imprint. And so in the ancient world, you would take a hard metal like iron, and you would carve an image into it. Usually it was some king or emperor or pharaoh claiming to be God. And then you would take a softer metal like copper or nickel or silver or gold, and you would take that and you slam it in there, and it would imprint it. And because you have a very hard metal slamming into a softer metal, when you lift it out, that is the exact image with no degradation, no fading, no nothing like that. It is the exact image. So in that sense, Christ is not just the image of God like us. Well, we're nothing like God, but we're meant to reflect His image because He is the light of God. He is the imprint of God. He literally is God. He is the image of God, literally. And so in that sense, you must understand that what's so amazing about this statement is you have distinction, yet unity. Because this is the hard thing is for us to understand the Trinity. You mean God is one, but He's also three? And this is the one that's like, God is spirit, the Holy Spirit is spirit, but they're not human, and yet Jesus is spirit and human, but yet God isn't. And so you try, you can't comprehend that. And so the idea by a minting of a coin, he's emphasizing that the coin is the imprint. That's unity, they're the same. But at the same time, you have an imprint and you have the coin, which means there's distinction. And so the beauty of the Trinity is you have unity and distinction at the same time. And that's one of the reasons you see this in the world. The family, the father, the mother, and the children, is supposed to reflect the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a little mini-trinity on earth that's supposed to reflect the image of God. And so in the family, you're supposed to have unity, but at the same time, distinction from each other. You're not all supposed to be exactly the same people thinking exactly the same way. That's why you have conflict. But at the same time, you are supposed to be unified in one-mindedness. And so but if you can do those perfectly, which we can't, then you reflect the truth of what the Trinity is. Distinction and unity. And that's what Jesus does perfectly. What we fail to do. And so that's the point that's being emphasized here. Number five, Christ sustains all things by His powerful Word. Now, for a Greek, they would have this image of Atlas, this Greek god holding the planet on his back, which is just a crappy job. And it's kind of like he's just holding it up. He's a human pedestal, okay? Literally, like, no respect. And so, that's not the imagery you're supposed to have here. The idea is not he... He lifts up and holds. The idea is that he sustains. And and when you get into Colossians, Colossians even begins begins to kind of paint the picture that if Christ stopped thinking about you, you would cease to exist. That it's not that Christ just created the world and wound up the clock and walked away, but that Christ actually keeps everything going. And without him, there is no furtherance, continuation. 
And so, but it's not just that. The word sustain in the Greek here not only communicates that he keeps everything alive and going and moving, but it also communicates the idea that he's pushing it towards its goal. The direction, it's not that we're just on a cyclical pattern, like in Hinduism, where life just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. But there is a destination in mind. There is an end goal to the redemption of God. There is a plan. There is a destination. There is a, I am convinced that He will complete the work that He has begun in you. And Christ is the one who's getting everything and pushing and driving and sustaining everything towards His ultimate goal. And without Him, we just disperse in nothingness, in our existence and in our purpose and our goal. And Christ is driving all things. And so it's not just the fuel to your car. It's the map and the engine. It's everything that guides it, drives it, pushes it, and fuels it in every kind of way. And that's what he's pointing out with Christ here. Six, he made purification for sins. He's the only one who brings you back to God. He's the only one that pays the penalty for death. He's the only one that can cleanse you and make you righteous. And so not only is he sustaining all things and keeping them going to their ultimate goal, but the only way you can get to the end goal is if the things are made right again. And he's the one that makes it right. He makes it right through his life. He makes it right through his sacrifice. He makes it right through his blood. He makes it right by the fact that he indwells you and actually gives you the ability. This is the beauty of Christ. That when we get into the chapter 2, we're going to be told that he's our trailblazer. Okay? Or our... our, um, our pathfinder, so to speak. And I love that image because the image here is Karl Marx said Christianity is a crutch. And it's like, and I don't know if you've ever tried to like fix everything you're on your own, make every right, perfect decision on your own, make everything completely work on your own, but we just fail. And you know what? Give me all the crutches I can get if that's what it means to have a good, peaceful, content, hope, joy kind of a life. And so in this sense, this is the reality. You can't save yourself. You can't meet the ultimate goal of God. And so the beauty of um, Hebrews chapter 2 is he says he's our trailblazer in the sense that God blazes this trail through the crap of sin and death and penalty and consequences to heaven where the throne is. So that now we actually know what the right path is. It's easy to walk and it's clear. But the image is also that he comes back and then walks the path with us. And in that way, he made atonement for our sins. He doesn't just make the path available. He says, remain in me and I'll remain you. And I will give you another who will come along your side and guide you and walk it with you too. And that sense, the stereotypical picture of the footprints in the sand is very valid even though sometimes it feels cliche and corny because it's been around forever. But at the same time, it's been around forever because there's truth to it. It's valid. Then the seventh one is Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But here's the beauty of it. We've come full circle. We started that he's heir of all things on the throne. And then he comes down as he gets involved by creating, gets involved by sustaining, then he becomes a mediator, then he actually is on earth, and now he goes back to the throne again. So Christ ends up back where he started. But the beauty is this, is that the idea of sitting means that his work is complete. And this is the point that the author is going to make later, is that the, if you've ever noticed anything in the First Testament, the, the priests were never allowed to sit. There was no seats in the tabernacle anywhere. 
They were not allowed to sit because their work was never finished. The minute they got done sacrificing the animal, somebody else was sinning. And they had to atone for it again. Their work was never finished. But Christ sits on the right hand of God. And you have three works going on here. In the beginning, God created the world and He created the kingdom of God where He would literally walk in the garden with us side by side. And God rested. His work of building a kingdom where we can interact with Him is finished. Then Christ dies on the cross and says, It is finished. Because now He's sitting on the right hand of God and His work of getting us connected back to the garden again that we lost is finished. Now there's the Holy Spirit living inside of us, walking us in that path. And when we get to heaven and we're given our new bodies and the new kingdom of God and everything is dealt with, I guarantee the Holy Spirit is going to say, it is finished. And so this is how each member of the Trinity is involved. And so here the author is focusing on Christ. It is finished. And so now he sits on the throne and we have access to him. And the beauty is he had the right to rule over the universe And point number one, because he is God and creator. Now he has the right to rule over the universe because he's the only one to pay for the universe with his own blood. And so Christ has the right to be king on the right hand of God because he created it, he owns it, and he paid for it. I mean, how ridiculous is that? He has to pay for the thing that he owns because of our sin. And here's the beauty. In every religion in the pagan world, the gods are always the ones who screwed up creation, brought sin in the world. And they always punish the humans for the sin. Now you've got this Greek coming out of the Greek world. And we are the ones who are responsible for messing up the world. And God pays it and he punishes himself for it. And that's the imagery that's being painted here. Okay, so he now is king. And he co-reigns with God. And that's the point. He is king, but he also has the right to be king because he died. And that's the point of Philippians chapter 2. That's the point of Daniel 7, which we'll unpack those passages more later. Because he has the right to be king in those sense. Now, here's the other thing. Seven, all throughout the Bible, is the number of completion. And anytime you see the number seven, it always means that things are now complete. Not perfect. It doesn't mean perfection necessarily. It means completion. It means that it's finished. It now is complete. There's nothing lacking anymore. So you have seven statements about Christ. And I guarantee you, and I'll be willing to bet my salvation on it because it was written by God, that these seven points summarize every activity and every essence of who Christ is. With these seven statements, the definition of Christ is now complete. Which means this too. You must fully embrace all seven points in order to proclaim Him as your Lord and Savior. You want a good test of affirmation of faith for your church? Why not just go to Hebrews? Hebrews tells you this is who Christ is. To deny one of them means that it's incomplete. And therefore, your definition of Christ is incomplete. Therefore, and I'm not saying you're not saved if you're only embracing six out of seven or five, But I would say you need to sit down and seriously look at your salvation and your relationship with God and your definition of God and ask yourself, is it really truly complete? Because Hebrews is saying it's not. This is Christ. And these seven statements are complete. 
And you can spend hours and hours and hours trying to find a good definition working it out in your committees of who Christ is, but it's right here. And then I think in this sense, there's no problem with plagiarizing. So this is Christ. So now, in verse 5 or verse 4, thus he became so far better than the angels as he has inherited a name superior to theirs. So this now becomes a transition. Now he's telling you, this is what I mean by Jesus' Son. But I'm also going to use this as a springboard into now why is it so important that Jesus is greater than the angels. Because as we get deeper in, we're going to find out the angels are also called the sons of God. So the Jew is coming out of a world where he's like, but God called the angels the son of God all the time. So why are you saying Jesus is special and unique? And the Greek is coming out of the world thinking... Augustus Caesar was a son of God. Antiochus was the son of God. All the, the emperors were sons of God. Hercules was a son of God, literally and biologically. Why is Jesus so special? And he's going to begin to unpack that. And first and foremost, these seven statements do that. None of those sons of God ever have always sat on the throne of God from the beginning of time. None of those sons of God ever perfectly, 100%, gave you the image of what God looked like. None of the sons of God made sacrifice for your sins. And none of the sons of God have ever gone back to the throne and sit on there for eternity future. And that's the first and foremost place how he's different than any son of God in the Greek world and any son of God in the Jewish world. And there are no two worlds. Even today, you and I are all Greeks. Once you study the Greek Empire, you realize we think like Greeks. We think it's dead and gone, but America is 100% Greek culture. And if you watch our movies, the pagan idea of Son of God is coming back in our movies. So the reality is, it doesn't matter what world you come from, Jesus is different than any of the sons of God. But just so that you know that, he's going to spend all of chapter 1 and 2 unpacking that uniqueness and difference. So he now has been demonstrated as King and priests and heaven and on earth and the book of revelation is going to make the point that just like christ has brought king and priest together into one person just like he brought god and man into together in one person the book of revelation is about him taking heaven and earth and bringing them together in him because one day in the book of revelation heaven is coming down to earth yes we may go to heaven when we die but you're not staying there because all of heaven's coming down like one big giant elevator. And so Christ brings all things together in him. And now we see king and priest, God and man, and he's ultimately going to point us, sustain us into the ultimate goal of heaven and earth together. Any questions? One of the reasons I'm recording this and one of the reasons I have notes is because I know it feels like you're drinking from a fire hose sometime. But the reality is, it's either drink from a fire hose or we spend the next two years unpacking this. So, um, and I guarantee that I've only scratched the surface because there's always more to learn from the Bible. So I'll let you pause, digest a little bit. There's nothing, I don't, awkward silence doesn't bother me. So just want to kind of think on those things a little bit, that's okay. If you just want to shut your brain off for a couple of seconds, that's okay too. Yes. So the question is, verse 4 makes the point that he's become so far better than the angels. Could that be misunderstood as he wasn't that before? 
No, I would say first because of the context. The context, remember, started with point number one, and point number one is he's always been God. And point number two is that he's the creator of all things. In Mormonism and some of those other religions, like Hinduism, that kind of stuff, you were never that to begin with. You're trying to become that. And so, yes, if you take that verse out of context, which people love to do, I would point them right back to the context and say, but look at the first two points. The first two points is that he's always been that. Now, why does it mention that he's become? Because Philippians 2 says that he gave up the right to be that and lowered himself to become a human. And so now he's become that again, so to speak. Now, we're going to unpack that a lot in chapter 2. So if that doesn't fully make sense, don't... Yeah, he never stopped being that, but Philippians is making the point, and here's where we kind of misunderstand Philippians. Philippians says, though he was equal with God, he did not see it as something to grasp. And you think, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, he's equal with God, but he's not trying to grasp it? Well, how can you not grasp something that you are? Because it's the wrong translation. Right, but that actually means he didn't hold on to it. Exactly. But it actually means more than that. It means that though being equal with God, he did not take his godhood as to exploit it. So he did not sit up there in heaven thinking, I am God, and then like treating us like little scumbags, servant slaves, and that you just do my will as I sit up here, eat, drink, and be merry, and you do everything for me. That's the image that we get. Because why? Because that's what a lot of our leaders throughout the world history have done. So what he's saying is he's God which means he has every right to sit in heaven and command you around because he's God and he owns you and he created you. But he did not see it as something to be exploited, which means he loves you too much just to demand and command you around. Instead, he became a human even to the point of a servant. So rather than using his godhood to exploit us and dominate us, he uses godhood to serve us, to redeem us, to save us. Then... The point is that he's going to make is that he always he doesn't cease to be God. That he, Philippians is not saying that he's not trying to grasp it. Um, he chooses just not to exercise those things right now. I'll give you an example. I have daughters. They're five, three, and one. Okay, um, a lot of energy and a lot of emotions, and so. Um, I wrestle with them. They love wrestling me. And a lot of times they beat me up. And if you walked in the room and saw me wrestling, no one would think, oh my gosh, that's so pathetic. That grown man is getting beat up by a four-year-old girl. Most people say, oh my gosh, it's so cute. If you're a girl, if you're a guy, you're like, whatever. Um, I have the power to just totally dominate and crush her. But my love for her, I restrain myself and choose not to exploit it. And so I choose not to access that strength in that moment. It doesn't mean that I'm no longer strong. It doesn't mean that I've given up my strength. It means I choose not to access it, tap into it at that moment. But don't ever make the mistake that it's going to be that easy if somebody invades the house. Because if I were just ultimately all-powerful, I can then kick into that at any moment. And so when Jesus says... I only do what the Father tells me to do, or nobody knows the time the Son of Man will return, only the Father in heaven. Don't make the mistake that he can't know, 
or he doesn't have it. What he's choosing at that moment is not to access his attributes. Why? Because Hebrews is going to unpack this idea because he wanted to become a human and live as a human and experience humanity and be a servant and suffer. And you can't suffer and you can't be human if you're constantly tapping into your God attributes. And so he never gave them up. He never ceased being God. He just chose not to access them for a time. And so now that he's no longer on earth as human, he's gone back his death and resurrection, meaning the, the fact that he conquered death, how can you argue that he's not God when he conquered death? That gives him the right to say, I've had this all along. Does that kind of make sense? And so the becoming is, should be more seen as a returning to, a reaccessing. If you ever thought for those 30-something years that I really wasn't God, me conquering death should let you know that I could have accessed that at any moment. Okay, and that's the point that's being communicated here. So in the context, and once again, Hebrews 2 is really going to unpack that. I would say, no, Mormon, you're not right on that one. So, in a more loving way than that. (laughs) It's a good question. 